Good day. I'm Martin Webb, and welcome to the Climate Report, broadcasting every second and fourth Thursday on KVMR-FM at 6.30 p.m. On today's show, we talk about fungus, China, California insurance issues, a lot about PG&E, and pets, along with a new federal government website that can help you get assistance with climate choices. First, let's look at what's happening with our global carbon budget and how fungi are helping store carbon. Scientists say that the world is burning through our carbon budget, which is the amount of carbon that we could still release into the atmosphere and stay below 1.5 degrees Celsius warming. A study has found that global greenhouse gas emissions are, unfortunately, at an all-time high, threatening to push the world into unprecedented levels of global heating, scientists have warned. They say the world is rapidly running out of carbon budget. That's the amount of carbon dioxide that can be poured into the atmosphere if we are to stay within the vital threshold of 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial temperatures. That's according to a study published in the journal Earth System Science Data in June. So they say now we only have about 250 billion tons of carbon dioxide that can now be emitted in order to avoid the accumulation of CO2 in the atmosphere that would raise temperatures to an unacceptable level. Well, that 250 billion tons left to emit is down from 500 billion tons just a few years ago. And at current annual rates of greenhouse gas emissions, which has averaged 54 billion tons a year over the past decade, it would run out well before the end of this decade. So again, we used to have 500 billion tons we could emit just a few years ago. We've burned through half that. We now have 250 billion tons that we um, it suggested we could emit. And again, over the past decade, our annual emissions for the globe are 54 billion tons. So you can do the math. If we have 250 billion tons left to emit and we emit 54 billion a year, then that means less than five years from now we will have used up our allotment based on science. Professor Piers Forrester, the director of the Priestley Center for Climate Futures at the University of Leeds and lead author of the paper, said, This is the critical decade for climate change. Decisions made now will have an impact on how much temperatures will rise and the degree of severity of impacts we will see as a result. He said the rate of annual increase in emissions had slowed down, but far stronger action was needed. He said we need to change approaches in light of the latest evidence about the state of the climate system. Time is no longer on our side. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change calculated five years ago in 2018 that the world must cut our greenhouse gas emissions in half by the end of this decade in 2030. That calculation rested on an assumption that the world would reduce emissions 7% a year during this decade. 7% a year throughout the 2020s gets us to half by 2030. So that's all that was needed was 7% reductions every single year during the 2020s. Ironically, we started the decade with the COVID response, and 2020 did indeed see a reduction of 7%. We needed to keep that going, that reduction throughout the rest of the decade, and unfortunately we're not. We're now increasing our emissions. So as emissions have continued to rise, the annual rate of decline is no longer 7% 
a year for this decade because we're a third of the way through the decade. So now we have to do much steeper reductions every year for the rest of this decade, more like 10 to 15%. In a ray of sunshine, however, earlier this year, the International Energy Agency found that emissions from energy in general, the biggest source of emissions on the planet, were showing signs of reaching a plateau. And 18 countries on the planet have shown sustained decreases in their emissions. That's about 10% of the countries on the planet. So 90% of the countries aren't showing sustained decreases, but 18 are, and uh, that means that they're leading the way. So what are we going to do with all of this carbon? Well, here's some interesting science on fungi, which uh, they've just discovered running some calculations, stores at least a third of the carbon from our fossil fuel emissions and could be essential to reaching net zero. That's right, the vast underground network of fungi beneath our feet stores over 13 gigatons of carbon around the world. That's equivalent to 36% of yearly global fossil fuel emissions, according to new research. It's widely believed that mycorrhizal fungi could store carbon, as the fungi form symbiotic relationships with almost all plants on land. And they help transport carbon, converted into sugars and fats by the plant, into the soil. But until now, the true extent of just how much carbon the fungi were storing wasn't known. They've been supporting life on land now for at least 450 million years, mycorrhizal fungi, and they make up vast underground networks all around us, even forming beneath our roads, our gardens, our houses, on every continent on Earth. The amount of carbon stored based on these calculations equates to 36% of yearly global fossil fuel emissions. That is more than China emits each year. So researchers are now calling for fungi to be considered in biodiversity and conservation policies given its crucial role in cutting carbon emissions. Unfortunately, at the current rate, the UN warns that 90% of soils on the planet could be degraded by 2050 which would be catastrophic for not only curbing climate change and rising temperatures, but for the productivity of crops and plants, too. Quoting Professor Katie Field, a co-author of the study, she said, Mycorrhizal fungi represent a blind spot in carbon modeling, conservation, and restoration. The numbers we've uncovered are jaw-dropping. And when we're thinking about solutions for climate, we should also be thinking about what we can harness that exists already. Soil ecosystems are being destroyed at an alarming rate through industrial agriculture, development, and other industry. But the wider impacts of disruption of soil communities are poorly understood. When we disrupt the ancient life support systems in the soil, we sabotage our efforts to limit global heating and undermine the ecosystems on which we depend. She closed by saying, more needs to be done to protect these underground networks. We already knew that they were essential for biodiversity, and now we have even more evidence that they are crucial to the health of our planet. Researchers are now investigating how long the carbon is stored by the fungi in the soil and are seeking to further explore the role that fungi plays in Earth's ecosystems. So uh, they say that a major gap in knowledge is the permanence of carbon. They know that uh, mycorrhizal fungi and structures store carbon, but they know that it's a flux with some carbon being retained in the mycorrhizal fibers and structures underground while the fungus lives and even after it dies. But some carbon is decomposed into small carbon molecules that bind to the soil or are reused by plants. 
and they admit that some carbon will be lost as carbon dioxide gas um, during respiration or by the fungus itself. So there you have it. Fantastic fungi um, storing more carbon than China emits every year. Okay, and that's on a global level. Speaking of China, now let's talk about some overseas news before we come back to uh, California and the United States, and then we talk about things that are relevant directly to you. Um, you know, while there's a lot of talk about what um, what European and uh, democracies and U.S. and these countries are, are doing for renewable energy, there's actually a lot of action in the what are considered more repressive social and political regimes. I'm going to mention a little bit here about Turkmenistan and China, because China is on course to hit their wind and solar power target five years ahead of time. Now, the U.S. still doesn't even necessarily um, have its grip on hitting targets, uh, much less hitting them early. But China is head and shoulders above the world when it comes to both wind and solar power. Um, They have more solar capacity than the rest of the world combined. And they're shoring up their position as world leader in renewable energy and uh, potentially, again, outpacing their own ambitious targets. So they're set to double their capacity and produce uh, 1,200 gigawatts of energy through wind and solar power. That's 1.2 trillion watts, which would reach its 2030 goal five years ahead of time. That's according to a report by Global Energy Monitor. That's a San Francisco-based NGO that tracks operating utility-scale wind and solar farms in the country. So uh, they also have, uh, so the utility-scale solar is more than the rest of the world combined, and um, they're looking at adding even more solar, triple that of the U.S., uh, double that of Europe. And when it comes to wind power, um, they have the equivalent of the next top seven countries combined, and with new projects planned along the coast and inner parts of the country, China is about to... Um, increase the entire global amount of wind power by 50%. Um, The findings are in line with previous reports and government data released earlier this year that predicted China could easily surpass its target of supplying a third of its power through renewable resources by the end of this decade. China's green energy drive is part of its effort to meet carbon goals set out in 2020 as the world's second largest economy. It is now the biggest emitter of greenhouse gases and accounts for half of the world's coal consumption. Chinese president uh, pledged in 2020 to achieve peak emissions for the country in 2030 and ratchet it down um, after that. The report attributed China's remarkable progress to several things. Um, a range of policies its government has implemented, generous subsidies to incentivize developers, as well as regulations that put pressure on local, provincial, and state governments, as well as utility and power-generating companies. You can contrast that to Congress here in the U.S., um, where they are loath to put any pressure on utility companies to green things up. Um, and there's always challenges offering incentives to developers and utilities. And they're saying that's what really helped in China. Um, but they also are having challenges with record heat waves, crippling hydropower stations. They have an outdated electricity grid, just like the United States. Um, And they're having trouble transferring energy between regions because the parts of the country where most of the wind and solar power and even coal is produced is in the sparsely populated western half of China. But the vast majority of energy consumption happens in the east. And transporting all that energy thousands of miles across the country 
results in inefficiencies. They're also still building a lot of coal, and more coal power was approved in the first three months of this year than in the entire year of 2021. So there it is, China building out more solar and wind than everybody, but still attaching it to uh, coal. In another repressive regime announcement to see that even in repressive regimes, sometimes they are taking steps um, that are beyond what the U.S. is capable of doing. One of the biggest issues is uh, not just carbon dioxide, but methane. Methane is a lot worse um, global greenhouse gas, but it lasts for a longer time period in the atmosphere. So carbon dioxide gets a lot of the attention because it stays so long. One of the biggest issues with methane comes from fossil fuel production, oil and gas facilities that leak and vent methane while they are both actively producing fossil fuels and after they've been closed. And Turkmenistan isn't a name that we hear a lot about, but uh, John Kerry, our climate envoy, just visited them and um, offered potential financial support and expertise in order for them to plug their wells. Turkmenistan has some of the most massive methane leaks on the planet. Methane emissions cause 25% of global heating today, and tackling leaks from fossil fuel sites is the fastest, simplest, and cheapest way to slash methane emissions, which unfortunately have been surging since 2007 with fracking. Fracking tends to cause a lot of methane. So Turkmenistan was responsible for the highest number of methane super emitter events in the world last year. The worst leak last year caused climate pollution that was equivalent to the rate of emissions from 67 million cars. Now, to put that in perspective, that's far more citizens than you have in California. Imagine if every single citizen in California, babies, kids, adults, everyone had a car and they stepped their foot on the accelerator and ran it for a whole year, that's what the largest methane emission leak coming out of Turkmenistan last year was doing. Now, the U.S. and Russia also had a large number of super emitter events, so um, this is a big problem in our own backyard. But um, but to sort of put this in perspective, um, in May of this year, The Guardian revealed that methane leaks alone from Turkmenistan's two main fossil fuel fields caused more global heating last year than the entire carbon emissions of the UK. The entire carbon emissions of the UK last year. That's Northern Ireland, Scotland, England, the entire, everyone there, all of the carbon emissions from every possible source in the UK, just these two fossil fuel fields in Turkmenistan vented more damaging global heating impacts than the UK. So just imagine sort of in some respects that the, the globe, imagine that the planet Earth is like a balloon and we're poking holes in it and venting out all of these gases from inside of it. That's what's been happening in Turkmenistan to an outrageous extent. But, um, and these leaks are believed to just come from aging and poorly maintained oil and gas pipelines. Um, but gathering information on the ground in, in this repressive and authoritarian state is difficult. So John Kerry visited them said we'd offer support and expertise, and now they're going to work on plugging their wells. Okay, now let's switch to, uh, this is a topic that, that I sometimes like to, to bring to folks' attention, and that is that oftentimes in the news and, and in public conversation, sometimes we're talking about the climate and we don't realize we're talking about the climate. A lot of surveys show that most Americans feel like they rarely ever talk about the climate. However, when you're talking about impacts, 
and the ripple effects, um, you most certainly are indirectly. And I liken it to, you know, a family living with a, sort of an alcoholic father who's rageful and angry and, and damages things. It'd be like constantly talking about the smashed windows and broken doors, but never talking about the actual problem causing the issue. And so with climate change, we're oftentimes talking about things like inflation, geopolitics, the price of food, all of these different things, and they are generally all related to climate change now. And so uh, whether you know it or not, you might be talking about it. Of course, they're talking about it less on Twitter. Here's a headline. Uh, climate scientists are fleeing Twitter, now known as X, as hostility surges. Uh, here's another time when people might not be realizing they're talking about climate change. A headline from Newsweek, are your seasonal allergies getting worse? Blame climate change. We've talked about that. More pollen in the air, the season's longer, starts earlier, ends later. So if you're talking about your allergies, you might be talking about climate change. But I want to bring up a little bit here about uh, insurance because this is finally uh, something that has impacted me personally too. I'm uh, a renter and my rent is going up next month by hundreds of dollars because of uh, the changes to fire insurance. And you may have heard about the different policies that are abandoned in California. It's happening in other states, Florida as well. But this is an article that ties that into climate change um, from Kate Aronoff. She's a staff writer at The New Republic. And um, she says, climate risks have made California uninsurable. When will we wake up? State Farm will almost entirely, the country's largest property insurer, announced two months ago that it will almost entirely stop issuing new policies in California, the country's largest property insurance market. The reasons for foregoing all that new business are entirely economic. The company cited historic increases in construction costs, outpacing inflation, rapidly growing catastrophe exposure, and a challenging reinsurance market. Well, those things are owed largely to the wildfires engulfing bigger parts of the state in bigger chunks of the year. California's woes have a lot to do with the climate crisis, which fuels the hot, dry conditions that turn wooded hills into kindling. It's also a political failure. Housing crises in the Golden State have pushed more and more people out of densely populated areas and into the so-called wildland-urban interface, places that are cheaper to live in and more prone to burn. Wealthy homeowners in fire-prone enclaves are also reluctant to move, keen to keep rebuilding properties that keep getting destroyed. Similar dynamics are playing out around the country. Insurance companies are hiking up costs or wholly withdrawing from some areas after deadly costly flooding in Appalachia and hurricanes in Louisiana and Florida, where property insurance rates are now triple the national average. In each case, the rich will make out all right for now, able to pony up the cost of more expensive policies or relocation. The rest will find themselves on the losing end of what happens when the private sector is entrusted with planning for climate chaos. State Farm didn't mention climate change in its announcement, of course. The sector has been under pressure from right-wingers that have attacked industry initiatives like the Net Zero Insurers Alliance, the NZIA. The Net Zero Insurers Alliance was an insurance industry initiative that was targeted instead as a plot by shadowy globalists to enforce a radical climate agenda through undemocratic means, according to right-wingers. More concretely, Republican lawmakers are engaged in saber-rattling premised on the notion that such industry alliances constitute a violation of antitrust rules. They can't work together to try and improve their carbon impacts. 
Well, owing to such pressures, 11 global insurance companies have now left the Net Zero Insurers Alliance just since March. The irony of the Republican crusade against all things ESG, which stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance Investment Principles, the irony is that the crusade takes all the flashy corporate climate pledges at face value, alleging that Wall Street is substituting ideology for what should be a focus on the bottom line. But ESG, Environmental, Social, and Governments Principles, for companies is all about protecting profits. State Farm, which touts its own ESG commitments, is leaving California, it said, to improve the company's financial strength. Republican lawmakers are trying to ban companies from making similarly pragmatic considerations of climate risk in their planning. Governments, meanwhile, have been slow to do much climate planning at all. There is no comprehensive federal plan to house people, let alone whole communities, who will be wiped out by climate-fueled storms and floods, despite the fact that some 10 to 15 million people could be displaced by sea level rise alone through the end of the century. Well, when governments don't plan for such events, corporations fill the gap, raising prices and deepening existing inequalities. Even the relatively well-off will be left to navigate a thicket of piecemeal neglected public programs and private sector middlemen to rebuild their lives. Rising prices and coverage gaps aren't some moral failure on the part of State Farm or any other for-profit firm, just business. These companies exist to return value to their shareholders. The government's job, though, is to protect its people. That it's failing to do that now doesn't bode well for an even more climate-ravaged future. Well, that was a piece written by Kate Aronoff, a staff writer at The New Republic, and author of Overheated, How Capitalism Broke the Planet and How We Fight Back. Well, and speaking of wildfire in California and in PG&E territory, there was expected to be a trial earlier this summer from the results of the 2020 Zog fire in Tehama and Shasta County. However, as part of a settlement to avoid trial, PG&E has agreed to pay $45 million to the rural area for fire prevention and rebuilding efforts, as well as a $5 million civil penalty. That's a significant sum in a small, under-resourced county. No one seems particularly thrilled with the resolution, not family members of the deceased, nor the district attorney in Shasta, Stephanie Bridget, who hoped to hold pg accountable and force change. It was supposed to be a big public reckoning. In June, America's largest utility was set to go on trial in an effort to hold it accountable for sparking the wildfire that claimed the lives of four people. Family members of the victims planned to face PG&E executives as the company stood trial in a Northern California courtroom on manslaughter charges, but instead the judge dismissed the charges, and like it has done in so many cases before, PG&E agreed to a multi-million dollar settlement. The outcome largely marks the end of a chaotic chapter for the company. It's a behemoth in the energy industry that serves about one of every 20 Americans and nearly half of all Californians. In recent years, pg has been defined by the devastating fires linked to its power equipment that have killed dozens across the state, resulting in mass payouts and the threat of criminal consequences, but arguably little reform. The utility did not have to admit wrongdoing as part of the Shasta County deal, and that's been their M.O. for several years. The company has been accused of repeatedly prioritizing profits over safety, enriching shareholders rather than removing trees. 
And between 2017 and 2022, PG&E alone set off at least 31 wildfires that wiped away entire towns, burned 1.5 million acres, 24,000 structures, and killed 113 people. Hopes for a government takeover or being split up into multiple companies have not materialized. And the company was still dealing with the fallout from the campfire when it sparked the new blaze in Shasta and Tehama counties. Um, PG&E was eventually fined $150 million additionally by a California Public Utility Commission, which alleged that the tree that caused the fire was not removed in time because of PG&E's poor record-keeping. Don't forget, um, when it comes to uh, power bills and prices, there are a lot of different programs out there for people on low income, care rates, FARA discounts, uh, smart rates, power saver rewards program. If you're someone that is uh, struggling to pay your PG&E bill, it's worth exploring and calling PG&E to ask what rates might be available to you. Their phone number is 1-800-743-5000. Okay, to wrap things up here, going to give you a couple of uh, ways that you can raise your awareness level and perhaps make more of a difference. Um, this was an interesting article because I'm an animal lover, and um, it was a cheeky little article in The Guardian about the difference between fish, cats, dogs, and um, their impact on the environment. And without reading the whole thing, here's what it came down to. Um, uh, a medium dog fed wet dog food uses an enormous amount, causes an enormous amount of emissions, uh, the equivalent of driving across the country in a gas car, um, 6,500 kilograms of CO2 a year, 6,500. Now that might be meaningless, but I'm going to read to you um, some of the alternatives with fish and cats and just feeding a dry dog food. They're all in the hundreds of kilograms. So uh, if you feed a medium dog dry food, it's 828 kilograms of CO2 a year versus 6,541. So medium dog wet food, um, really high emissions. Feeding them dry food um, cuts it almost 90%. Then next is tropical fish. If you keep them in a 400 liter um, aquarium that's 635 kilograms almost as much as a medium dog on dry food but if you shrink that size down to a 50 liter tank again you shrink that by almost 90 percent so if you have a medium dog switching from wet to dry food makes a huge difference if you keep tropical fish going to a smaller tank makes a big difference and cats where do cats land they're 250 kilograms of carbon dioxide a year so that's less than fish less than dogs And that's a meat-eating cat. They say you can lower your cat's carbon footprint by um, feeding them fish more than uh, the other types of meats. Okay, so this is uh, what you can do yourself. The Department of Energy's new tool helps you get your share of the climate law's billions. The Biden administration launched a hub to walk you through the process of accessing Inflation Reduction Act incentives for energy audits, heat pumps, EVs, and more. With the Inflation Reduction Act, the Biden administration unleashed a torrent of incentives to help individuals electrify their homes and vehicles and thereby slash their energy bills, improve air quality, and cut carbon pollution. Well, now the U.S. Department of Energy has created the Energy Savings Hub. Those are the three words you have to remember, Energy Savings Hub. It's a one-stop shop to put those tax credits and rebates at consumers' fingertips. The Inflation Reduction Act provides American households with, on average, $10,600 to electrify, 
according to the nonprofit Rewiring America. In previous articles, we've read that um, homeowners, if you got every single incentive and bundle it all up together, it's almost close to $15,000 worth of uh, benefits, rebates, tax credits, incentives, and such. But this bonanza of incentives will only help people if they know about them, said Emily Rossi. That's the Department of Energy's deputy digital director who helped design the energy savings hub. A survey from January found that two-thirds of U.S. adults had heard little to nothing about the Inflation Reduction Act. And even after being briefed on the law, only 22% thought it would benefit them personally. Well, the recently launched DOE hub could help change that. Rewiring America and other nonprofits have created resources to show consumers what the climate bill could do for them. But this energy savings hub is notably different in that it was created by a U.S. federal agency. By helping people access incentives to electrify, the hub could help close the gap to our goal of having U.S. green emissions. Having, not not having as in I have this, but halving, (laughs) cutting in half. Uh, The Hub is like a giant choose-your-own-adventure electrification catalog for Americans and has separate sections tailored to whether you're a homeowner, renter, or driver and shows you relevant upgrades. So that's the Energy Savings Hub. All right, well, that's all for today's Climate Report, broadcasting and podcasting here on KVMR-FM and at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. I'm Martin Webb. As always, today's show will be archived and posted to the KVMR website's podcast page for sharing or re-listening. For questions or comments, feel free to email climatereport at kvmr.org.